real, real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Hard truths. Gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs and, guns. and guns. Giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. All right, we're back again. Nathan Romus with you. And today we have Calvin Krusty with us. And a little bio on Calvin. He was a member of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police from 1985 to 2017, during which he completed a tour with the United Nations in former Yugoslavia. And that was in 93 to 94. He was doing work with uh, prisoners of war and body and kidnap negotiations. He was also awarded in 2016 by the Chiefs of Police, the International Policeman of the Year. Uh, he's completed a number of degrees and uh, uh, educational achievements here. He's been a Master's of Law in Dispute Resolution and Negotiations. And further programs he's completed in cybersecurity at Harvard University and some stuff on crisis management. Calvin is currently a senior partner with the Critical Risk Team. This group manages situations involving kidnap for ransom incidents, cyber response, transnational organized crime threats, asymmetrical and hybrid threats, and security and advisory services. Uh, he's also got a number of uh, volunteer credits to his name. So busy guy. Welcome, Calvin. Thank you very much. And uh, honored and particularly uh, honored to participate in a podcast affiliated with the municipal uh, department as my uh, family heritage uh, comes from uh, the municipal policing lines. Yeah. Well, we're going to get into it. You got uh, a very interesting career. I was reading a bunch of the stuff on your background and trying to pick out like, hey, what are we going to mention even in the bio? But I was like, well, I'm going to go through it real short and then we're going to let you do all the talking. So um, yeah, we appreciate having you here today. And uh, we'll start at the beginning. And can you kind of tell us uh, how you got into policing and, and spent uh, so much time with the Mounties? Well, I, I guess I, uh, I'll probably start from, you know, grew up in Winnipeg and uh, grew up in a neighborhood that uh, uh, unfortunately some of my uh, you know childhood friends went down one path and I uh, probably got more polarized to go down a different path uh, as a result of uh, that. I'm still friends with some of those uh, people. So I saw kind of some of the <clears throat> social harm type of uh, activities that uh, affected uh, other people's lives. And I, I was uh, talking to my wife the other day, and I, I said, reflecting on it uh, after recently watching the French Connection with Gene Hackman uh, recently, I reflect that seeing that as a childhood uh, movie back in the early 70s. And I think it probably had a, a lot bigger effect on me in terms of... Uh, uh, my interest in terms of policing and what I had a passion in policing for. And, uh, so I, I, I as you alluded to, uh, started, uh, left high school, went into a uh, university, um, tried the uh, summer student program for, uh, two or three years and, uh, uh, spent my summers, uh, in the RCMP, uh, in a summer student program in a couple small towns in Manitoba, then up uh, to northern Manitoba in some indigenous communities. And uh, from there, I, you know, decided to kind of, you know, pursue a path uh, in the RCMP. Okay. What, uh, did you do, apply to any other services or was it you're specifically geared toward the Mounties? Uh, I actually applied for uh, CSIS uh, at the same time in a parallel approach. And coincidentally, uh, almost uh, the same day in the same week, uh, was offered employment with uh, both uh, entities, and uh, I chose the RCMP, uh, you know, a policing career because I thought uh, it probably uh, provided a broader uh, uh, context of opportunities, uh, coupled with a little more uh, actions and activities. And uh, I was I wasn't sure if I was prepared to sit at a desk and uh, you know read reports and write reports. So I thought. Uh, I'm probably more uh, an action-oriented guy at this point, and I could pivot later on if I decided to do that. Yeah, and for people who don't know, CSIS, I guess, would be considered our spy, spy agency, if we call it that? Yes, our security and intelligence agency on uh, 
on uh, collecting intelligence on national security threats, counterterrorism, foreign influence, uh, espionage, et cetera, within Canada. Okay. And not James Bond work, though. I would say uh, it would be uh, kind of a James Bond-like type of uh, work in terms of uh, perhaps not as sensationalized uh, as that, but uh, uh, really uh, involved in a very more covert uh, type Mm -hmm. uh, presence in terms of collecting intelligence, disrupting, you know, uh, foreign threats to uh, Canadian citizens and Canadian uh, organizations, uh, but much more uh, discreet and covert. Mm. So it would be the uh, possible player parallel to uh, 007, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, so you got into the, the Mounties in 1985. Uh, I went through in 2011. So I wonder, is your, your experience at Depot much different than mine? Uh, can you kind of talk about training and, and what it was like back in, in those days? Well, I sense from the political climate, at least today, I can't speak in, in at, at the tenor that you went through. But uh, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I would say uh, we were probably at the tail end. The charter had uh, just come into uh, effect mm-hmm. um, roughly uh, several years before that. And I would say it was probably more old school paramilitary style of training, which uh, to be quite honest, uh, thoroughly enjoyed, and everybody I know that went through it thoroughly uh, enjoyed it. And uh, possibly, uh, contrary to uh, current uh, pop culture, uh, I saw a lot of benefits uh, to it in terms of uh, character building, resilience, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Probably maybe some downsides to it as as well that uh, may not have awareness about. But uh, it was it was uh, you know uh, basically break you down, build you up type uh, mentality. And, um, you know, the boundaries in terms of political correctness uh, and the sensitivity probably uh, uh, were probably not congruent with uh, today's world, Mm -hmm. but uh, nevertheless, uh, still enjoyed it and uh, thought it was beneficial. Yeah. And uh, that was actually one of the topics I wanted to get to was kind of, you know, you got in right around that time that the charter is uh, starting to come in and like any kind of legislation, you know, it, it comes into effect, but to get it actually put into practice and everybody understands how this new thing is going to work and be interpreted, uh, you're kind of right around that critical juncture at that time. Yeah, I, I mean, at that time, policing was very, very different. Um, and, you know, compared to what it is today, I think I probably, you know, witnessed some of the, you know, greatest transitions, evolution in terms of uh, challenges in uh, policing. And, uh, you know, I, I recognize probably when I uh, exited policing that uh, what made me uh, effective in the 80s and 90s uh, probably uh, wasn't something that uh, that same skill set, mm-hmm. mindset, character uh, wasn't uh, always conducive to uh, contemporary uh, context. And, um, you know, one can, you know, say better or worse or, or, or whatever, but without any judgmental, uh, analysis, uh, put on it. Um, uh, it, it's kind of like, you know, looking at leaders and people like Winston Churchill, mm-hmm. uh, great in, uh, wartime situation, but then he, you know, had challenges as a leader because of his, his character post wartime when there was peace there. And I, uh, I think many of the people that uh, were doing policing, you know, in the 60s and 70s and 80s, and even in the 90s, uh, you know, developed a certain style. And, uh, uh, you know, some characters and personalities were more effective back then Mm -hmm. than they would be uh, probably in the uh, modern contemporary times with different, uh, you know, uh, professional boundaries and constraints um, to them. Yeah, and I think a, a good point that you, you speak to there was in that paramilitary experience, the kind of the fortitude that you build being there and when you're broken down and then you have to work really as a team and know your strengths, your weaknesses. And it's meant to have a, a, a lot of self-reflection and some of that doesn't exist in the way it used to now. And you see a lot more people um, I'm not going to call people soft. That's not what we're saying. But 
it's, uh, I think a lot of people just lack some of that resiliency because some of the issues we deal with now are uh, like, even within my career, 10, 11 year career, uh, I never even saw that at the beginning of it. And people were able to kind of push through some things they're not able to deal with now. And maybe we'll even get into it more when you're talking about your current position with the critical risk team. Like you got to go and talk to people with, uh, from different countries that actually, for the most part outside of North America, the Westernized culture, they're going to operate on a lot more of those old school mentalities, a lot more kind of uh, hardened in their views and their beliefs. Uh, so I think people don't realize that, that that could be missing here. And then now you got to go out in the real world and deal with people from everywhere. Uh, it could be quite eye-opening. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And I, and I still think there's, there's probably functions um, within, you know, current policing uh, professional roles, you know, where some of, um, for lack of a better uh, term, that wartime uh, leadership personality characteristics uh, are, are still uh, required mm-hmm. and uh, supported and facilitated by the organization. And then there's a, you know, I think it's kind of evolving that there's, you know, more and more uh, in terms of other skill sets and uh, personality qualities that are required. And I, I found just coincidentally, and I, I'm kind of, uh, although there's no video to this, uh, kind of giggling a bit, uh, I found, you know, as we may talk about here down the road is that I was probably uh, more effective and as you alluded to in my uh, introduction, uh, you know, the Canadians chiefs of police uh, awarded me uh, in 2016 policeman of the year uh, internationally. And I think that's probably kind of speaks to the point that you're making mm-hmm. is uh, I, I don't think I would have won the Canadian uh, policeman of the year nationally. Uh, but I think I obviously was successful internationally because of the, different environments and contexts. And I think, you know, just my skill set, my training, my experience, uh, and my personality was probably more, uh, an uh, to, you know, perhaps more dynamic, higher risk taking, um, less, um, less boundaries, so to speak in yeah. terms of, uh, um, policy protocol, uh, etc. you know, uh, and working abroad, I found myself uh, feeling much more comfortable uh, working with international partners than in the uh, current context within Canada often. Yeah. Well, and so around that time, when, uh, when you're kind of first starting out, was the charter, like, were you reading people, their 10A, 10B, their charter rights, you know, advising them of their, they, you know, they don't have to talk to police and so on and so forth? Uh, was that already kind of hard and fast? Was that a rule or is this still kind of developing and, and what did policing look like around then on your day to day? Well, I was working in Northern, uh, BC in a small logging, uh, community and several indigenous communities. And, and to be quite honest, I, I mean, the charter came out, uh, and this is going back to, uh, 86 when I uh, started mm-hmm. policing in those communities and at six months service, not even six months, I think it was four months, uh, service, you know, they, you know, Hey Kelvin, there's the uh, plane, jump on the plane. You're going to be flown into that, uh, indigenous community and we'll pick you up somewhere between seven days and 10 days. And that's a four month service, right? So my training's finished. Uh, and I, I go into the community and to be quite honest, it was pure common sense survival. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of fear, fear-based decisions in terms of, uh, um, you know, a 23-year-old uh, guy coming out of the city going into a community like that by yourself. Uh, and it's uh, 11 o'clock at night and there is no radio, there is no street lights, there are no cars, and you're having to kind of um, adapt, uh, you know, with a focus on survival and safety. The charter wasn't playing at the, at the forethought in terms mm-hmm. of... Uh, operational consideration it was 
you know, very much more pragmatic in a lot of those communities, I think. Uh, and yes, did we charter people and do all that stuff? Yeah, I mean, it was fairly well instilled uh, within policing, you know, with, you know, almost instantaneously, I would presume. Um, but I would say that it wasn't, it hadn't involved in terms of case law to, with all the specific nuances yeah. uh, on it. So, like, I even look at back in the 90s, early 90s, on uh, on uh, disclosure, the evolution of the disclosure laws back in the uh, early 90s. Like, people just didn't know what to disclose, what not to disclose. Everything was up in the air. Uh, so there was a lot of uncertainty in terms of here's these strategic principles of the charter and how does that cascade down into the operational and tactical, you know, decision-making and application within policing at the tactical and operational level. Yeah. I couldn't imagine being back then and, and well, I guess disclosure is a whole nother thing to even we could get into, but it's, uh, you think of now we can put in hundreds, if not thousands of pages, uh, whether it's reports, evidence, um, expert, uh, expert reports, there's all kinds of stuff that goes into it. And I couldn't imagine, you know, 30 something years ago, you're looking and it's like, I wouldn't have any of that. So it'd be a whole different world, different kind of court process for all of it, but very interesting. Um, so where did your career kind of take you? So I went up North for the first uh, couple of years and I was very passionate as I alluded to in terms of my, uh, um, exposure to the, the uh, movie French Connection mm-hmm. and my uh, upbringing in terms of a, a hood in uh, Winnipeg where uh, you know some of my friends had gone off to a different direction, including jail. And uh, so I, I, I was very passionate in terms of drug enforcement. Uh, I started that up north and uh, was asked to uh, come down to the uh, lower mainland area here in uh, the Vancouver area to uh, uh get more involved with the opportunities here in uh, drug enforcement. So I came down here, I got involved in a plain clothes section, a burglary section, uh, learned to kind of uh, the basic street skills in terms of uh, surveillance um, and, and other investigative uh, aspects. But I had done that obviously up north, which is a lot more conducive in a small town policing environment, doing search warrants and uh, and uh, handling sources in a small town versus being on patrol where you're going from call to call. But I got down here, and uh, within about nine months, uh, I got asked to go to a plain clothes section. Did that for uh, uh, a year and a half, then went to a drug section for uh, a couple of years uh, in uh, a uh, one of the municipalities uh, in the greater Vancouver area. And then I went to Vancouver Drugs, um, uh, a federal unit, and worked on a marine importation, which was basically, I think, my first day of work. Uh, the uh, operation they were running a, a UC, and it was like uh, for a ton of uh, hash, which was a pretty big deal back then. So that was super interesting. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, as you uh, mentioned, uh, I did a couple tours overseas uh, to the uh, former Yugoslavia, which was a, a complete eye opener in terms of how the world uh, works. Sometimes in other places. In, and probably majority of places except for nice places like uh, Canada. And then I got back, came back, went into a uh, national security, uh, looking at counterterrorism stuff, particularly on the left wing uh, aspect of things. And uh, went to, uh, moved into uh, homicide, homicide to uh, uh, the first, I think, created uh, anti corruption unit within policing in Canada. And that was uh, targeting. Uh, essentially uh, corrupt police officers, dirty uh, cops working with organized crime for the most part. Um, did that for uh, three years and then ran a large detective unit uh, down here with about 55, 60 uh, detectives uh, at uh, Burnaby Detachment uh, here. And uh, then got seconded to the federal government and dealt with a lot of the disputes and negotiations with uh, indigenous groups, uh, out here, but also uh, across the country. Um, and I did that for just over three years. And then I got to where I think we're going to be having some conversations about 
to, uh, I was on my way actually to Israel for a year stint. And one of my former bosses, uh, caught me in the hallway and I was going to leave in a couple of weeks and said, Hey, listen, would you come over to the intelligence uh, program and, uh, run the intelligence program as the ops officer for it. So I, uh, I thought, well, he kind of talked me into it, arm twisted me. I'm not sure if it was the, the best decision, but I did it. Um, and, uh, I ended up doing that for uh, three years, and then in about 2010, um, I moved out uh, to the money laundering anti-proceeds of crime uh, unit, which I was very apprehensive going into because I couldn't balance my own uh, checkbook, uh, so I didn't know how I was going to conduct an investigation into that. And then I got very involved uh, at that point in uh, 2010, running international operations with the DEA, uh, Homeland Security, FBI, and other international agencies. And basically that was the beginning of kind of uh, living in a suitcase and uh, running operations, you know, on the different uh, four continents. And at the same time, um, uh, you know, I was running a parallel thing off my desk where I was running the uh, national uh, terrorist negotiation uh, team where we were doing all the negotiations for uh uh, Canadians that were uh, kidnapped uh, abroad and I had been doing that since like the early 2000s and then at that point in 2010 I was the team leader doing it for uh, Canada so I was spending most of my time uh, on a uh, plane in a suitcase or in a hotel room somewhere uh, until I retired in 2017 oh, I, I never would have thought so when somebody gets uh, taken as a hostage in another country that falls into the RCMP's uh, kind of their, I don't say jurisdiction, but yeah, into their mandate. I always thought that'd be like a military thing. No, so so they, um, uh, well, it's it's the government of Canada. The the, the lead agency uh, was Global Affairs, mm. uh, our uh, external, um, our foreign affairs uh, uh, branch of the federal government, and then within it, they had the military was part of those responses. Our special forces, uh, CSIS was part of the uh, response, and uh, the RCMP was part of the response. And under the uh, criminal code uh, for extraterritorial investigations, if there's terrorist um, uh, involvement on it, and without getting into the uh, complexity of the legal requirements to uh, trigger an extraterritorial investigation, mm -hmm. uh, but terrorism is one of them. Uh, then the RCMP has mandate to investigate that. So our our two roles essentially in it was one to conduct a, a parallel criminal investigation while there was a response for the Canadian to try to resolve and uh, repatriate or to gain the release of the uh, person. So I was involved in the negotiations with the terrorist groups with a, a group of individuals that we would uh, be deployed uh, in most cases. Uh, abroad to uh, assist and support foreign affairs and work with uh, our other uh, federal partners on it, including the military and the intelligence uh, component to it. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Combined forces type uh, operation. That's, um, I think a lot of people don't realize just how, how many jobs exist within the RCMP and the opportunity to not only move across Canada, but they've got places worldwide and that's actually a, a pretty big draw i'm surprised I, I don't think i really see that get pushed in a lot of their recruiting you know they might talk about like you get to move but um boy those are some interesting positions like that's a lot of stuff that i always thought you know police did but you don't hear about it and i imagine you could be there for 20 years and not even see half the job postings for a lot of the jobs that they have there a lot of the uh specific assignments you could do so that's pretty interesting um one thing i i maybe this will kind of lead us into our discussion what you do today but you were saying you were working on the the national security and it kind of was toward the left wing groups um yes you're probably the first person i've ever talked to that's ever mentioned that everybody nowadays and most of the political narrative is always everything's right wing and everybody's uh, uh some sort of nazi but what what are the left wing groups or like what groups did you deal with back in the day? Well, one group and it's a uh, subject of uh, disclosure in court, so it's open uh, for uh, 
public discussion. One group was, um, it was called MDATF. Uh, and you're going to ask me to remember what that stood for. Uh, if pe- I can't remember. People <laughs> could Google it. Uh, yeah, yeah. But it, essentially, it was uh, a, a group of individuals that were affiliated with organizations like uh, ELF, the Animal Liberation Front, mm. and uh, environmental uh, groups. Uh, and these folks were particularly focused at uh, anything relative to animal testing or anybody doing anything with animals or the environment, and they would target them. And uh, the targeting included uh, bombing. I think they actually did a bombing in uh, in a lab in Alberta, if I remember correctly. And uh, so they were fairly uh, uh, like very willing to use violence to accomplish their uh, political uh, objectives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there, there was a, you know, they were kind of the, you know, extreme element within that uh, left wing movement. But there was always that left wing movement where you had the law abiding, you know, for the most part, uh, Greenpeace and others uh, at one end of the spectrum uh, in terms of the left wing movement. And then at the far end of the uh, spectrum, you'd have MDATF and uh, others that were affiliated with them. So when it comes to national security, do they, uh, can you kind of explain how they might classify groups? Is it by uh, ideology? Is it by, you know, left versus right, red versus blue type? Or is it just, you kind of look at their structures and, and characteristics and then you say, okay, they're whatever they might be? Well, I'm, I don't consider myself, when it comes down to the, uh, bureaucratic um, uh, classification um, uh, and Canadian government mm-hmm. uh, classification of groups in that. I, I don't profess to be uh, a current contemporary uh, expert in it because it's been a, a bit since I've been involved in how all that gets processed organizationally wise. Um, but at that time, uh, I, I think it was just like on a case by case basis. You know, what was the uh, are the people committing you know significant criminal acts? I.e., if you're um, blocking a uh, road for an hour in a protest, wasn't a big interest to the national security folks. Mm-hmm. But if you're uh, spik- spiking trees uh, with spikes with the intent of uh, having uh, a logger put his chainsaw into it and have it kick back, you know, and injure himself by cutting his arm off or uh, the chainsaw flipping up in his face and you're doing those type of activities uh, where your, like, intent is to, you know, grievous bodily harm um, or, you know, in these bombing cases, then, you know, for the purpose of just understanding them, you know, Back in the day, when I remember doing it, like in the '90s, we had right wing, we had left wing. I just coincidentally was on the uh, the, the left wing. I mean, I had uh, since that time worked right wing um, uh, targets, mm-hmm. but it was in a homicide uh, thing where we had neo Nazis that were uh, responsible for uh, uh, killing, uh, like racial killings, uh, and that out here in Vancouver. So we, I mean, we have both out here historically. Yeah. Yeah. I like, and I mean, the definitions almost seem to constantly change the goalposts, never stay in the same place. Um, I would say all I hear now in at least today's media is about right wing. And then if you're considered, you know, you're shutting down pipelines and other things, you're a protester, but I guess it's definitions and uh, people can change those. So Interesting, but well, so you were working in the national security, and it sounds like you had quite the, I guess, the scope of different places that you went to. What, um, what's kind of the most memorable spot for you? And did anything kind of lead you into what you do today? Have or maybe have more of an impact on what you do today? Um, 
I'm just processing that for a second. I yeah, pro, well, there's probably a number of uh, factors. I probably the first factor was my exposure working. Uh, you know, um, I probably spent four four years working abroad or five years working abroad in uh, in uh, difficult. Uh, context, you know, whether they be war zones, post-conflict zones, or high-risk uh, areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and part- particularly, I think, you know, my exposure, you know, working with the uh, Canadian military as, you know, a uh, peacemaker uh, back in the former Yugoslavia, I really had a, got a better appreciation in terms of um, probably the cost and price uh, people paid for, you know, democracy and freedoms. And the sacrifices that, say, for example, our military and others that participate in those operations uh, paid both historically and in terms of contemporary environment. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think what I saw was policing uh, over the last decade that I was involved. Uh, I was seeing more threats that were becoming a uh, national security threat, a threat to our, you know, democracy and freedom from foreign entities operating in Canada and transnational organized crime groups. And I think, you know, my historic kind of, uh, experience working in these other countries mm-hmm. made me probably more highly motivated to uh, work in the space that I'm currently working in, you know, as a, you know, with the critical risk team where we're working with clients in the, uh, uh, private sector, you know, corporations, law firms, NGOs, and others with the interest of trying to protect them, um, uh, currently from these same threats I was seeing when I was in the RCMP and in policing. And where I saw, to be quite frank, that the system itself, the, the judicial system, uh, ranging from police, police leaders, prosecutors, judges, politicians, and everything, appeared to be, in my assessment, fairly ineffective. Um, at mitigating those threats to uh, Canada. So I, you know, left uh, the RCMP. Uh, I was actually not interested in getting into this work because I had done so much of it and uh, working around the world and traveling and dealing with stressful situations. But when I retired, my phone started ringing, uh, you know, from former colleagues from the military side and other side going, hey, uh, would you be able to help this person? Would you be able to help? And it really wasn't what I was interested in doing, but I I just found that there wasn't anybody really doing that much of it in Canada. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's what kind of motivated me doing it. And when I look at it now currently, I'm probably doing very much the same thing in many ways um, that I was doing in policing where we're doing like intelligence operations, investigations, uh, risk mitigation, trying to help, you know, you know, families, you know, businesses, uh, law firms trying to solve their problems where they're under some form of threat. Um, and the difference really is at the end of the day, um, I just don't have the bureaucracy and I don't have the politics. And, um, I find, uh, you know, that the way that the judicial system has evolved, one, but also I think it's as, as the culture of our country has evolved. And they say, you know, uh, bad times cr- create strong people. Mm-hmm. Uh, good times create weak people. I think, uh, you know, since the 60s and 70s, we've created a lot of weak people. And we don't have a lot of strong people. And I think the combination of all these factors and globalization and the polarization of the world uh, has given this enhanced need on the private sector. There's this void who's taking care of the corporations, who's taking care uh, of, of, you know, 
these NGOs, who's, who's doing all this stuff. And, and really my experience is the police doesn't do not have the capacity to do it anymore. Um, they may be able to go to the B and E, they may be able to go to the domestic dispute, uh, and do some of the fundamentals of, uh, policing. But I would suggest the evolution of the judicial system and the charter and everything else. Uh, I think it's very difficult to be effective at protecting Canadians at that, you know, with these high level international threats posed, mm-hmm. uh, to Canadians. And, and, and that's kind of how, you know, what's kind of motivated me to, in this area and, and to be quite frank I, I feel uh, more fulfilled on the outside than I probably did in the inside because I was always hitting the glass ceiling you know with my head yeah. uh, within the organization and 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 on the outside I'm, I'm finding I'm dealing with probably just as interesting threats you know whether they be from the triads or being from a foreign government or from a spy agency or from, uh, you know, transnational organized crime groups. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling that, you know, just as fulfilled on the outside without the bureaucracy of the inside and the politics. So, yeah. uh, and that's kind of that, that journey that I've taken and, you know, that, that's where I'm at right now. So can you kind of break it down for anyone who would be listening? What exactly does the critical risk team do? And uh, can you kind of flesh out, like maybe even if you have an example of how you know, a business might approach you, what type of problem they come to you with, yeah. and then how you in turn kind of work on that? Well, okay, I will. First of all, I'll just say what structure is. The structure is like a diverse group of uh, professionals uh, that has worked you know, in risk, security, intelligence, in crisis situations. So um, we have like uh, former special forces, former uh, intelligence, former uh, police. We're very, very closely affiliated with uh, law firms in terms of uh, the work that we do. Because usually they're the ones where everybody goes when they have a really significant problem. They go talk to their lawyer first and the lawyer goes, okay, what are our options? Mm-hmm. Do we contact the police? Are they going to be able to do something? Which I get the sense more and more they're thinking that the police won't be able to help them with some of these uh, complex problems. So they quite often um, reach out to entities like uh, ourselves. Uh, um, and basically, I use the term, but I'll explain the term, asymmetrical problem solvers. We solve people's security, risk, intelligence, and crisis problems that they're ill-prepared for it and they didn't expect uh, to encounter. So one may be um, somebody, a business leader uh, involved in a uh, business uh, dispute uh, and all of a sudden uh, getting, uh, you know, life threats uh, to himself um, from a uh, foreign entity and, uh, you know, the police, you know, we may look at, hey, let's go to the police, let's have a conversation um, with the police about it. We find the police don't have the intelligence capabilities and or um, the raw resources to, um, or, or because of the policy implications and structures, mm-hmm. uh, they can't find out uh, who's making the phone calls uh, and who's making the threats, thus they can't mitigate the threat, thus they can't protect the Canadian citizen. So we come in and through our intelligence capabilities, um, we'll, you know, reach out to our international partners um, and figure out, you know, who the person is making uh, the threats and uh, attempt to uh, mitigate it and uh, assess it. And, you know, we try often to work with, um, you know, police, intelligence, military and other entities and we try to facilitate that sometimes uh, where we see that as being the preferred uh, option. But that's one case. You know, another case, somebody, you know, uh, investors investing uh, in, in a new business and uh, somebody rips them off, you know, $50 million or $100 million. And they may come to us and say, hey, can you help <clears throat> track down where this person is, where the money went? And you know, we'll look at uh, tracing assets. Another one, 
is looking at foreign interference where uh, corporations are seeing uh, protesters uh, protesting against uh, some type of development, whether it be oil or mining or something else. And they'll go, where are these protesters getting their money and how do we make this? Uh, particularly if it's a foreign entity that's uh, supporting the protesters. Mm-hmm. And then we'll look at, hey, okay, first we'll figure out who's where the money's coming from and how do we mitigate it? Do we do it legally? Do we do it through uh, countering the information? You know, these are the kind of the current context in terms of the foreign threats. And lastly, uh, the last example, <clears throat> media will sometimes come to us, um, you know, with journalists uh, be- becoming more and more under threat uh, in Canada mm-hmm. due to their coverage of uh, foreign threats uh, operating in Canada, whether it be uh, China, Russia, uh, Iran. Uh, and if they're trying to do news stories on it, they may come to us and ask us for assistance and support in terms of security and risk uh, mitigation. So those are just kind of a, a couple of the type of situations that uh, we kind of currently engage in. Oh, that's, uh, you guys sound busy then, because <laughs> I, I imagine there's no end to that work. And you know, it, it, um, it makes me think of something where some of the guys that we deal with in the organized crime aspect, uh, they even say, you know, that there's people that have direct influence on the day-to-day activities here in Edmonton, uh, you know, and, and this would be true for places like Vancouver, Montreal, Toronto, any of the big cities, but, and then it just, it goes out from there, but there are people from all the way in uh, India, the Philippines, uh, Dubai. Um, we have guys over in Europe that have direct influence, are calling shots here all the way through you know multiple channels down into Edmonton. People wouldn't have a clue that that exists. Um, and then a lot of the guys even tell us like nowadays with the way the system is set up for the judicial system and um, the the police and how we can kind of respond and what we're limited within the charter and case law and common law and all these other things. Um, and not saying that we're not effective and that we don't have our time and purpose and our, our place to handle these things. But there are things that are beyond police capabilities. Um, and they know that and some of these organizations are extremely well funded um sometimes i refer to them as like small governments with the amount of money and people and resources that they have and they can reach out and touch people wherever they need to they can move assets around they build um you know when we we put on the news oh we found a container on the coast with drugs in it or we caught someone at the border bringing a truck over like that's all built into their budget and they know that we get told that all the time you know uh you guys we send 10 trucks through we know you're going to catch one of them but you're so busy with you have to take all the photos you got a fingerprint you do 100 pages of paperwork with that one truck you got that's going to take you a month to process uh how many have driven through it's like well you're not wrong. Um, so what do we, what do we or people do about those things when it starts getting even greater in scope? So it sounds like that's kind of your niche, right? Where you kind of come in. Yeah, I you know, and, and we cover a certain area of that, but we could probably have a a whole podcast conversation just about the transnational organized crime activities, threats, you know, and the gaps and the challenges uh, and that. But, you know, long and short is after spending whatever, 10 years specifically just in that field um, and, you know, listening to leadership, listening to both in policing, out of policing, in the judicial system, in the political system, I have yet heard anybody other than a few friends and associates, you know, over a, uh, uh, you know, a beer or a coffee, talk honestly about um, about how ill-equipped 
ill-prepared and potentially ineffective we are in terms of the whole judicial system, uh, including, you know, police prosecutors and judges. Uh, and, you know, when I reviewed, like, parts of the recent money laundering inquiry out here in BC, and they virtually dismiss, you know, issues relative to the challenges with disclosure law. Uh, I don't think many of these people, you know, they just haven't been at the table on these operations and working around the world to understand, number one, how Canadians and their justice system is perceived and, and probably equally how incongruent it is uh, to effectively work with international partners and uh, agencies. I'm just going to move because I, I have a train below me here oh. somewhere, so I apologize for that. Um, but I, I, I don't think there's like really frank, honest conversations about it. Mm-hmm. And everybody seems to try to uh, avoid having these very serious discussions, um, you know, and they look at coming up with a whole bunch of other excuses uh, for for what's happening in society in terms of the uh, proliferation of of organized crime, the threats, you know, the fentanyls, the money laundering, and all that. They keep looking at everything but uh, perhaps legal reform, including, I would say, <clears throat> you know, the leadership of police. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're doing anybody any great favors by not having a, a public dialogue about it and, and examining it. And when I looked at, we tried to do that in the Cullen Commission. Um, it was a whole bunch of lawyers um, and some judges, but they weren't, they're not at the table when we're running operations and we're sitting, you know, in a boardroom in Miami with a bunch of Colombian and Mexican police going, how are we going to deal this? And then we go, Oh, Hey, there's a thing called stench comb. Mm-hmm. What's that? We describe it to them. And they essentially, you know, politely walk out of the room. They can't do that. They can't. They can't work that. That means that means dead people in their country. Mm-hmm. If we abide by that law, and it's not that we're trying to be maverick, rogue, or, or go around the charter, but it's just incongruent. The charter and the Canadian legal system was designed for uh, policing in a fishbowl. I always say, i.e., Canada. Mm-hmm. But when you're policing in all these issues, even including in Edmonton, you have these international tentacles and influences. You can't stop and mitigate those threats, you know, using approaches that work in the fishbowl because Edmonton, Calgary, Vancouver, it doesn't matter which city across Canada, we see foreign operatives touching on each and every city. And when we looked at the score sheets of of uh, Chapel Guzman's son years ago. I mean, he had all the score sheets where they were dropping off coke in Vancouver, in Edmonton, in Calgary, in, Saskatchewan, in Regina, in Winnipeg, in Toronto. All those cities are touched by the cartels. Mm-hmm. And the legal system uh, really doesn't do anything you know, to assist and support that. So I think that's a, a big challenge, but that's probably a whole other conversation we could have. Yeah, well, and you want... Uh based on the conversations we have with people who are in these worlds, uh, you're hundred percent right. And I think a lot of the, uh, it doesn't help with just fanning the flames and the narratives out there. You know, as soon as you say, well, you know, we can't really operate within these rules the way we need to, uh, instantly it becomes, oh, you're just, you're just trying to hurt people. You're trying to, uh, be dirty cops. You know, um, we don't do us ourselves a lot of favors in that, we don't stick up for ourselves in a lot of ways. Um, that's part of why that, like, we have this podcast is because it's to have conversations with people and um, get some depth to, you know, the the discussions that should be had out there. Um, and we're not so worried about just being PC all the time. And I think that's a lot of that's kind of, yeah, like you're saying, it, it it ends up with dead people. Um, certainly, a lot of the conversations being had are uh, very narrow in very narrow minded, and not really seeing the bigger picture other than what's two feet in front of you. So, 
Um, and I get there's there's also a political aspect to a lot of what's said and done out there. But um, are we really trying to save people here? Because if we are, we need some harder conversations. Um, so where, what does your job kind of entail? Like what's your day to day? What does it look like? Are you still uh, living out of a suitcase and are you all over the world? Well, I try not to. I've been fortunate with COVID. It's kind of restricted uh, travel. So I've been able to stay home, which I enjoy in that. Uh, however, you know, I just got, came back from Latvia, you know, right on the border of uh, Russia to deal with uh, clients over there. And, uh, you know, um, next week I'm off to uh, Winnipeg to uh, meet with a number of law firms uh, to discuss some of the uh, assistance and support we can provide them and their clients. And then the week after, I'm going to uh, Chicago to uh, speak on a uh, international p- panel to uh, Fortune 500 companies on uh, international kidnappings. And I know they're always, you know, the, the, the topic is uh, specifically looking at kidnap for ransom, but really we're looking at all, all what I would like to introduce in the topic uh, without letting the cat out of the bag here is really looking at state facilitated kidnapping where we saw the two Michaels in China kidnapped, mm-hmm. where we see a basketball player in Russia where uh, states are now using this, you know, almost facilitating a kidnapping themselves, i.e. Uh, an illegal detention. And I see this being, you know, a growing concern. So we're looking at doing that because some of our clients, because of their travels to businesses uh, or, or their associated businesses, puts them into uh, some countries at risk as the world's getting more polarized. So um, I still travel a bit, but hopefully not as much because I, I do enjoy being at home now. All right. Well, um, I think we're going to wrap it there. I think it's a good place to end. Uh, we have a lot of other things we could talk about just in your last uh, speech here, in your last bit. Yeah. I was like, wow, there's about 10 things I could ask you. Yeah. But um, I, I do have to go to. Uh, so yeah, we'll wrap it there, but I appreciate the time. Um, stay on the line and I'll, uh, I'll say by offline, but is there anything you wanted to kind of plug? Do you have a, anywhere that you want people to follow, uh, Twitter or Instagram? No, I try, I try, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I try to stay off Twitter. Uh, I'm on Instagram, but I purely on Instagram relative to, uh, uh, cocktail recipes. So you'd probably be bored uh, reading uh, that. Um, and uh, no, if there's anything uh, we can uh, ever assist with or I can assist with in terms of uh, your uh, police department or others, I'd be more than willing to uh, to uh, assist and support you guys or have other further conversations about some of the topics we t- discussed today. Great. Um, okay, I'll end the recording. Just hang on the line. Okay, thanks.